Part three, chapter three of Dawn of All by Robert U. Benson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. All day long there had hung a strange silence over the city, unlike in its quality that ordinary comparative quiet of modern towns, to which the man who had lost his memory had become by now accustomed. He knew well by now the gentle, almost soothing hum of busy streets as the traffic and the footsteps went over the noiseless pavements and the air murmured with the clear subdued notes of the bells and the melodious horns of the swifter vehicles all this had something of a reassuring quality reminding the listener that he lived in a world of men active and occupied indeed but also civilized and self-controlled but the silence of this inner quarter of berlin was completely different its profoundness was sinister and suggestive now and again came a rapid hooting noise, growing louder and more insistent, as some car, bound on revolutionary work, tore up some street out of sight at forty miles an hour, and away again into silence. Several times he heard voices and sharp talk pass beneath his window. Occasionally, somewhere overhead in the great buildings, sounded the whir of a lift, a footstep, the throwing up of a window. And to each sound he listened eagerly and intently, ignorant as to whether it might not mark the news of some fresh catastrophe the tidings of some decision that would precipitate his world about him as to the progress of events he knew nothing at all since that horrible instant when the door had closed in his face and the cardinal had gone again as mysteriously as he had come now three days ago he had heard no hint that could tell him how things developed he had not even dared to ask the taciturn servant in uniform who brought him food as to the fate of the old man for he knew with a certainty as clear as if he had seen the dreadful thing done that his friend and master was dead dead as the revolutionary committee had said he would be if he came with any message other than that of submission as to the manner of his death he dared not even conjecture it would be swift at least ten thousand thoughts recurring and recurring like pictures thrown on a wall ran past his attention as the hours went by he saw the gathering of armaments the horizon tinged by the gathering war vessels of the air the advance the sudden storm of battle the gigantic destruction from these vast engines of power of which he had learned nothing but their ghastly potentialities or he saw the advance of this desperate garrison dispersing this way and that for their war upon the world silent vessels moving in the clouds to rome to london to paris and versailles each capable of obliterating a city or he saw again the submission of the world to the caprice of these desperate children who feared nothing not even death itself who crouched like an ape in a powder magazine lighted match in hand careless as to whether or no themselves died so long as the world died with them he formulated nothing concluded nothing he rejected every conjecture which temporarily constructed itself in his almost passive mind he did not even yet fully understand that the question he had asked of himself months before the question that had tortured him so keenly as to whether these christians who ruled had not forgotten how to suffer, had been answered with dreadful distinctness. He just perceived that the young Roman prince had been gallant, 
that the old man had been more gallant still, since those to whom he came had already proved that they would keep their word. And now the third day was drawing to an end, and by midnight suspense would be over. The fog still hung over the city, but towards sunset it lifted a little, and he raised his heavy head from his breast as he lay, half sitting, half lying, on the tumbled sofa and blankets on which he had slept, to see the red sunlight on the wall above him. It was a curious room to a man who had grown accustomed to modern ways. There was a faded carpet on the floor, paper on the walls, and the old-fashioned electric globes hung, each on its wire, from the whitewashed ceiling. He saw that it must be a survival, or perhaps a deliberate archaicism. The sunlight crept slowly up the wall. Then the door was unlocked from the outside, and he turned his head to see James Hardy come smiling towards him. "'Good evening, Monsignor. I am ashamed that I have not paid you a visit before, but we have been very busy these days.' He sat down without offering to shake hands. The priest saw, with one of those sudden inexplicable intuitions, more certain than any acquired knowledge, two things. First, that his having been left alone for three days had been by deliberation and not carelessness, and second, that this visit to him, only a few hours before the time of truce expired, was equally deliberate. His brain was too confused for him to draw any definite conclusion from these facts, but he made at least one provisional decision, as swift as lightning, that he must hold his tongue. "'You have had an anxious time, I am afraid,' went on the other. "'But so have we all. You must bear no malice, Monsignor.' The priest said nothing. He looked between his half-closed eyelids at the heavy, clean-shaven, clever face of the man who sat opposite him, the strong, capable, and rather humorous mouth, his close-cut hair turning a little grey by the ears, watching for any sign of discomposure. But there was none at all. The man glanced up, caught his eye, and smiled a little. "'Well, I am afraid you're not altogether pleased with us. But you must bear in mind, Monsignor, that you've driven—' he corrected his phrase, you drove us into a corner. I regret the death of the two envoys as much as you yourself, but we were forced to keep our word. Obviously your party did not believe us, or they would have communicated by other means. Well, we had to prove our sincerity, he paused, and we shall have to prove it again tonight, it seems. Again there was silence. I think you're foolish to take this line, Monsignor went on the other briskly, this not speaking to me, I mean. I'm quite willing to tell you all I know, if you care to ask me. I've not come to bully you or to triumph over you. And after all, you know, we might easily have treated you as an envoy, too. To be quite frank, it was I who pleaded for you. Oh, not out of any tenderness. We have got past that. You Christians have taught us that. But I thought that so long as we kept our word, we need not go beyond it. And it's proved that I'm right. Aren't you curious to know why? The priest looked at him again. Well, we are going to send you back after midnight. You will have to witness the last scene, I am afraid, so that you can give a true account of it. The Emperor's death, I mean. He paused again, waiting for an answer. Then he stood up. At last, it seemed, pricked into impatience. 
Kindly come with me, Monsignor, he said abruptly. I have to take you before the council. It was a large hall resembling a concert room, into which the priest came at last an hour later, under the escort of James Hardy and a couple of police, and he had plenty of time to observe it, as he stood waiting by the little door through which he stepped onto the back of the platform. The platform stood at the upper end of the hall, and was set with a long semicircle of chairs and desks, as if for judges, and these were occupied by perhaps thirty persons, dressed, he saw, in dull colors, all alike. The dresses seemed curiously familiar. He supposed he must have seen them in pictures. Then he remembered a long while ago, Father Jervis telling him that the socialists resented the modern developments in matters of costume. The president's desk and seat were raised a little above the others, but from behind the priest could see nothing of him but his black gown and his rather long iron-gray hair. He seemed to be answering in rapid German some question that one of his colleagues had just put to him. The rest of the hall was almost empty. A table stood at the foot of the platform, and here were three or four of the usual recording machines. A dozen men sat here, too, some writing, some listening leaning back in their chairs. In the middle, on the opposite side of the table, stood a structure resembling a witness-box, ascended by two steps, railed in on the three other sides. A man with a pointed gray beard was leaving the box as the priest came in. Standing about the hall, also, were perhaps twenty other persons, apparently listening to the president or waiting their turn. There were tall doors at the end of the hall, closed and guarded by police, and in the middle of each of the long sides, two other doors, also closed, communicating with other rooms and passages, in one of which the priest had waited just now until the council could see him. Except for the rapid, heavy voice of the president, the hall was very quiet, and from the very silence and motionlessness of those present, there exhaled a certain air of tenseness. It would have been impossible for any intelligent person not to notice it, and for the priests with his nerves strung, as they now were, to an extreme pitch of sensitiveness and attention, the atmosphere is overwhelmingly significant. Of what it signified he had no idea, beyond the knowledge he already possessed, that the hours were running out, and that midnight would seem a decisive event, which, though it must mean ultimately the ruin of every person present, might, for all that, change the line of the world's development. A protest so desperate as this could not but have a tremendous effect upon human sentiment. He had caught a glimpse an hour before, as he whirled through the streets, far up against the luminous sky westwards, of a string of floating specks, which he knew to be the guard boats, strung out now, night and day, in a vast circle round the city. At midnight they would surely move. Dark had already fallen outside, but the hall was as light as day with the hidden electric burners above the cornices, and he could see not only the faces, but the very expressions that characterized them. One thing at least was common to them all, a silent, fierce excitement. It would be about ten minutes before the priest's turn came to face the council. It seemed that the member to whom the president was speaking was not satisfied, and question and answer all in rapid, unintelligible German, went on without intermission. Once or twice there was a murmur of applause, and more than once the President beat his hand heavily and emphatically upon the desk before him to enforce his point. 
the priest guessed that the unanimity was not perhaps as perfect as the world had been given to believe however guessing was useless the president leaned back at last and hardy stepped forward to his chair and whispered the president nodded and the next moment at a sign from hardy the two police urged the priest forward by the arms across the platform down the steps and so round to the right up into the witness box then the president who had still been whispering behind his hand turned abruptly in his chair and faced him monsignor related afterwards what an extraordinary moment that had been his nerves were already tight stretched and his expectation was at the highest but the face of this man who now looked at him tremendous though he knew such a personality must be which could conceive and drive through such a revolt as this the face of him was beyond all imagining in the fashion of the day it was clean-shaven and the absence of hair except where that of his head framed the face increased the impression of those lines and shadows it was a priestly face saw monsignor with all the power and searchingness of one who can deal with living souls but the face of a fallen priest in complexion it was sallow but the sallowness of health not of weakness full-shaped but without being fat the lips were straight and thin the nose sharp and jutting and well curved and the black eyes blazed at him with immense power from beneath heavy brows his hair was brushed straight back from the forehead and fell rather long behind the face resembled a carefully modelled mask through the eyes of which alone the tremendous life was visible the priest met those eyes straight for an instant then he lowered his own knowing that he could not be wholly himself if he looked that man in the face he was surprised to hear words of english uttered he looked up again and there was hardy speaking from behind the president's chair monsignor you would not answer me just now now that i am speaking in the council's name will you consent to do so i will answer what i think right to answer there was a touch of amusement in hardy's voice as he went on you need not be afraid monsignor we do not extort answers by the rack i only wish to know if you would be reasonable the priest said nothing very good then first we will tell you our intentions at midnight as you know we keep our word and the emperor will have to go the way of the others it is regrettable but the christians do not seem to understand even yet that we are in earnest you will have to be present at that scene i am sorry to say but you can comfort yourself by ministering to your co-religionist he has not had a priest admitted to him since his arrest immediately afterwards you will be set at liberty and put on board the airboat on which you travelled from rome with the same driver who brought you here on one single condition that condition is that you go straight to the holy father tell him all that you have seen and take with you one or two little objects he paused and beckoned to someone behind a man came forward with the little box which he laid on the table hardy opened it this is the box you are to take yes i see that you recognize them there are the beretta the skull-cap the cross and the ring of the late cardinal Bellairs. there are also in this box the ring and a medal belonging to the late prince odone you will take these with you as pledges of what you say will you consent to do this the priest bowed for a moment he was unable to speak you will also tell the holy father went on the other 
replacing, as he spoke, the things in the box, what you have seen of our dispositions. You will say that you saw us entirely resolute and unafraid. We do not fear anybody, Monsignor, not anything at all. I think you understand that by now. You will have a letter, of course, to take with you. It will contain our final terms. Because, and I assure you that you are the first of the outside world to hear this news, because we have decided to extend our patience for one more week. We shall, during that week, in order to prove the genuineness of our intentions, make a raid upon a certain city, and, we hope, destroy it. Naturally, I shall not inform you where that city stands, and if, at the end of that week, our former terms are not accepted, we shall carry out our promises to the full. You may also add, he went on more deliberately, that our party is represented in every capital of Europe, and that these may be expected to act in the same way as that in which we have acted, as soon as the week expires. We have no objection to telling you this. Our plans are completely made, and no precautions on your side can hinder them. Is that clear, Monsignor? Yes, said the priest. You are satisfied that we mean what we say? I suppose so. Hardy's manner changed a little. Up to now he had been speaking coldly and sharply, except where once or twice a slightly ironical tone had come into his voice. Now he bent forward a little with his hands upon the table, and his tone became a trifle friendly. Now there are just one or two questions of the council wish me to put to you. Monsignor glanced up at the circle of watching faces, and as he looked at the President, he could have sworn that a look of displeasure came over the man's face. Well, our first question is this. I dare say you will not answer it, but if you will oblige us, we shall be grateful. Can you tell us whether, when you left Rome, the Holy Father or the European powers showed any signs of yielding? The priest drew a breath. I am absolutely sure, he said quietly, that they had no idea of yielding, and that they never will. Why did they send envoys, then? They were willing to make other concessions. What were these concessions? Monsignor hesitated. I am not an envoy. I have no power to say. Do you know what they were? Yes. Why will you not say? Is it not the wish of the powers to come to terms? It was their wish. Do you mean that it is no longer? I could not imagine it being their wish any longer. Why? Because you murdered the two envoys they sent, said the priest, beginning suddenly to shake all over with uncontrollable nervous excitement. Have you any reason for saying that? I know what I would do myself under such circumstances. And that is? The priest straightened himself and seized the rail before him to steady himself. I would wipe out of existence every soul that was concerned in those murders. I would have no more civilized dealings with savages. There was a sudden movement and murmur in the circle on the platform. From the intentness with which they had followed the questions and answers, Monsignor saw that they understood English well enough. One man sprang to his feet, but simultaneously the president was on his own, and with a gesture and a sharp word or two, restored order. That is very deplorable violence, said Hardy, but it is most Christian. 
"'I am beginning to think so myself,' said the priest. "'Well, well,' said the other, tapping the table irritably. "'We must get on.' A door behind him, communicating with the offices behind the hall, opened suddenly as he spoke these words, and he broke off. Monsignor followed the direction of his eyes, and saw a man enter who was plainly in a state of extreme excitement. He was across the platform in three or four quick steps, and laid a paper before the President, pushing by Hardy to do so. Then he stood back abruptly and waited. The President took up the paper deliberately and read it. Then he laid it down again, and a question too was asked smartly in the same rapid German, and answered as smartly. Then he turned, increasing the paper between his fingers as he spoke, uttered a sentence that brought every man to his feet. In the confusion that followed, Monsignor stood for a while disregarded. The man who had brought the message had, after one more sentence, snapped at him over the President's shoulder, vanished once more. For the rest, they were up now, forming into groups, talking excitedly dissolving again, and reforming. Only two remained quiet, Hardy and the President, the latter still in his chair, staring out moodily, with the Englishman whispering into his ear. Then Hardy too stood back and stared about him. One or two men came up, but he waved them aside. Then his eyes fell upon the priest, still waiting. He slipped away from the chair, came down the steps, and beckoned to him. Monsignor was in a whirl, but he turned and came obediently out of his place into the corner by the steps. He noticed as he came that even those who guarded the lower doors were talking. "'There's news,' whispered Hardy sharply. "'Another envoy is coming. Who is it?' The priest shook his head. "'I have no idea.' "'He'll be here in ten minutes,' said Hardy. "'He passed the line of guard boats five minutes ago. "'Monsignor,' Yes. Just come behind here a moment. I want to have a word with you. As they crossed the platform, he slipped off again to the president's chair, whispered a word to him, and returned. Come through here, he whispered. Together they passed through the door at the back, and so into one of the little rooms through which they had come together half an hour before. There he closed both doors carefully and came up to the priest. Monsignor, he said, and hesitated. The priest looked at him curiously. He began to see that a disclosure was coming. Monsignor, I have not been hard on you. I came as soon as I could. Well? I, I don't know what's going to happen. The envoy's coming at the last hour. The council is in a very divided state of mind. You saw that? Well? They're wavering. It's no use denying it. They'd accept almost anything. It's perfectly desperate. They see that now. He was fingering the priest's sleeve by now, and his eyes were full of a pitiable anxiety. What do you wish me to do? Well, they'll say I was responsible. If the negotiations came to anything, I mean, they'll say I urged them on. They'll sacrifice me, me and the President. They'll say that they never would have gone to such lengths. What's that noise? Monsignor jerked his head impatiently. He began to see light. Well, went on the other nervously, I want you to speak for me, if necessary. If necessary, you understand. 
you're a christian monsignor you'll stand by me the priest waited before answering as the situation took shape before his eyes he began to understand more and more clearly and yet a voice called out sharply beyond the door and hardy leapt to the handle beckoning with his head and as the priest obediently followed he gave him one more look of entreaty and opened the door the president stood there the great man more impressive than ever now as his great height showed itself ran his eyes slowly over the two come back to the hall he said so slowly that even the priest understood it and turned the envoy's coming whispered hardy breathlessly as he paused before following you remember monsignor it was hardly a minute since they had left and yet all confusion had vanished every man was back in his seat with that same impassive and yet attentive air that they had worn when monsignor first saw them yet with his new knowledge it seemed to him as if he could detect beneath all that something of the indecisiveness of which he had just learned certainly they were under admirable discipline yet he began to see that even socialistic discipline had its limitations the president was already in the act of sitting down hardy was stepping up behind him and the priest was still hesitating by the door when down at the lower end of the hall there was a movement among those who guarded it the great doors opened and a figure walked straight in without looking to right or left he came on and up and as he came the hush fell deeper it was impossible even to see his face he was in a long travelling cloak that fell to his feet a travelling cap covered his head and about his throat and face was thrown a great white scarf such as the air travellers often use he came on still without looking to right or left walking as if he had some kind of right to be there straight up to the witness-box ascended the steps and stood there for an instant motionless then he unwound his scarf lifted his cap and dropped it beside him threw back his cloak with a single movement and stood there a white figure from head to foot white capped there was a great sigh from the men on the platform two or three sprang to their feet and sat down again as suddenly only the president did not move then there fell an absolute silence oh well said the pope in delicate french i am arrived in time then he looked round from side to side smiling and peering this little commonplace-looking frenchman who had in his hand at this period of the world's history an incalculably greater power than any living being on earth had ever before wielded father of princes and kings arbiter of the east father as well as sovereign lord of considerably more than a thousand million souls he stood there utterly alone with a single servant waiting out there half a mile away at the flying stage in the presence of the council who in the name of the malcontents of the human race had declared war on the world of which he was now all but absolute master no european nation could pass a law which he had not the right to veto not one monarch claimed to hold his crown except at the hands of this man and the east even the pagan east had learned at last that the vicar of christ was the friend of peace and progress and he stood there smiling peering at the faces i come as my own envoy said the pope presently adjusting his collar 
The king said, They will reverence my son, so I am come as the vicar of that son. You have killed my two messengers, I hear. Why have you done that? There was no answer. From where the priest stood, he could hear labored breathing on all sides, but not a man moved or spoke. Oh, well, then, I have come to offer you a last opportunity of submitting peacefully. In less than an hour from now, the armed truce expires. After that, we shall be compelled to use force. We do not wish to use force, but society must now protect itself. I do not speak to you in the name of Christ. That name means nothing to you. So I speak in the name of society, which you profess to love. Submit, gentlemen, and let me be the bearer of the good news. He spoke still in that absolutely quiet and conversational tone in which he had begun. One hand rested lightly on the rail before him. The other gently fingered the great cross on his breast, naturally and easily, as the priest had seen him finger it once before in his own palace. It was unthinkable that such a weight in the world's history rested on so slight a foundation. Yet for a few frozen moments no one else moved or spoke. It is probable that the scene they witnessed seemed to them unsubstantial and untrue. Then, as the priest still moved, fascinated and overwhelmed, he noticed a movement in the great chair before him. Very slowly the president shifted his position, clasping his hands loosely before him and bending forward a little. Then a dialogue began, of which every word remained in the priest's mind, as if written there. It was in French throughout, the smooth delicacy of the Pope's intonation, contrasting strangely with the heavy German accent of the other. "'You come as an envoy, sir. Do you then accept our terms?' "'I accept no terms. I offer them.' "'And those?' "'Absolute and unconditional submission to myself.' "'You received our notice as to the treatment of such envoys?' There was a rustle in the hall, but the other paid no attention." but certainly. You come armed, then, protected in some manner. The Pope smiled. He made a little opening gesture with his hands. I come as you see me, no more. Your armies are behind you. The European air fleets start from every quarter at midnight. With your consent? But certainly. You understand that this means immeasurable bloodshed? but certainly you defend that my master came bringing not peace but a sword but i am not here to teach theology but until midnight until midnight i am in your hands again the silence fell deeper than ever monsignor took his eyes off the pope's face for an instant to glance round what he could see of the circle all were staring steadily some half sunk down in their seats, others stretched forward, clasping the outer edges of the desks with strained hands, all staring at this quiet, white figure who faced them. He looked again at that face. If there had been in it not merely agitation or fear, but even unusual paleness, if there had been in those hands, one of which bore the great papal ring, not merely trembling, but even a sign of constriction or tenseness, it might well have been thought the priest afterwards, that the scene would have ended very differently. But the naturalness and ease of the pose were absolute. 
He stood there, the hands lightly laid one upon the other, his face palish, certainly, but not colorless. There was even a slight flush in his cheeks from his quick walk up the long hall. It was a situation in which the weight of a hair would turn the scale. Then the President lifted his head slightly, and a tremor ran round the circle. "'I see no reason for delay,' he said heavily. "'Our terms were clear. This man came with the full knowledge of them and the consequences of disregarding them.' The Pope lifted his hand. "'One instant.' Mr. President, I see no reason. Gentlemen. A murmur of consent rolled round the thirty persons sitting there, so unmistakable that the man who up to now had ruled them all with a hint or gesture dropped his head again. Then the Pope went on. Gentlemen, I have really no more to say than that which I have said, but I beg of you to reconsider. You propose to kill me as you have killed my messengers. Well, I am at your disposal. I did not expect to live so long when I set out from Rome this morning. But then, what will you gain? At midnight every civilized nation is in arms, and I will tell you what perhaps you do not know, that the East is supporting Europe. The Eastern fleets are actually on their way at this moment that I speak. You propose to reform society. I will not argue as to those reforms. I say only that they are too late. I will not argue as to the truth of the Christian religion. I say only that the Christian religion is already ruling this world. You kill me? My successor will reign tomorrow. You kill the emperor. His son, now in Rome, at that moment begins to reign. Gentlemen, what do you gain? Merely this that in days to come your names will be foul in all men's mouths. At this moment you have an opportunity to submit. In a few minutes it will be too late. He paused a moment. Then, to the priest's eyes, it seemed as if some subtle change passed over his face and figure. Up to now he had spoken, conversationally and quietly, as a man might speak to a company of friends. But, though he had not noticed it at the time, he remembered later how there had been gathering during his little speech a certain secret intensity and force like the kindling of fire. In this pause it swept on and up, flushing his face with sudden color, lifting his hands as on a rising tide, breaking out suddenly in his eyes like fire, and in his voice and passion. The rest saw it too, and in that tense atmosphere it laid hold of them as with a giant's hand. It struck their tight-strung nerves. It broke down the last barriers on which their own fears had been at work. "'My children,' cried the White Father, no longer a Frenchman now, but a very son of man, "'my children, do not break my heart. So long and hard the labor, two thousand years long, two thousand years since Christ died, and you to wreck and break the peace that comes at last.' that peace into which, through so great tribulations, the people of God are entering at last. You say you know no God, and cannot love him, but you know man, poor willful man, and would you fling him back once more into wrath and passion and lust for blood, those lusts from which even now he might pass to peace, if it were not for you. You say that Christ is hard, that his church is cruel, and that man must have liberty, 
I, too, say that man must have liberty. He was made for it. But what liberty would that be which he has not learned to use? My children, have pity on men, and on me who strive to be their father. Never yet has Christ reigned on earth till now. Christ to himself died, as I, his poor servant, am ready to die a thousand times, if men may but themselves learn to die to self and to live to him. Have pity, then, on the world you love and hope to serve. Serve it indeed as best you can. Let us serve it together. There was an instant silence. He stood there, his hands clasped in agony upon his cross. Then he flung his hands wide in sudden, silent appeal. There was a crash of an overturned desk, the crying out of desperate voices altogether, and as from the great tower overhead there beat out the first stroke of midnight, the priest, on his knees now, saw through eyes blind with tears, figures moving and falling and kneeling towards that central form that stood there, a white pillar of royalty and sorrow, calling for the last time all the world unto him. But the president sat still at his desk, motionless. End of Part 3, Chapter 3